I don't enjoy the conversation about making music as a career, having that conversation with young people as much as I did back in the 90s. Jonathan Brooke and I talked about that. We said, you know, we used to say to kids in front of their parents, like, yeah, do it. Who cares what they think? (laughs) Now we're like, well, can you do music and something else? And maybe your life will be better for that anyway, you know, but it's not the same jump in that van and go thing that that we used to encourage young people to go ahead and do. This is Professional Confessionals. We are joined today by singer-songwriter, author, and teacher, Dar Williams. You do so much, lady. Thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Let's dive right in. Tell us about your professional journey Where'd you go to school? And at what point did you know you wanted to pursue a career in music? You know, circumstances really affected my life, my life path, (laughs) because I went to, I knew from my late teens that I wanted to be an artist. I thought, you know, whatever happens, the kinds of questions that I ask, the kinds of things that are important to me are the kinds of questions that artists ask. So I think that that's where I'm going. And I was interested in theater and music and opera and also like a kind of a big schmear across all that. But then when I got to college, I thought, you know, I really have to focus on theater and I really have to make sure I don't get distracted by music. (laughs) So, So then after college, a friend of mine said, you know, move to Boston. All my friends were moving to New York because that's where you did theater, and I wanted to be a playwright, I decided. But she said, move to Boston and write plays because then you can get a, a bagel and a cappuccino for less than $2. <laughs> and I was like, great, that's what I'll do. And it was it was kind of fantastic. It was kind of like a, a fairy tale because I went there after college, and a friend of mine had worked at the Opera Company of Boston which and it turned out to be Sarah Caldwell's last year. She's this legendary opera director and conductor. And she said, look, I, you know, I know that you're interested in this kind of stuff. Would you, they're looking for, you know, interns slash stage managing assistants. And so I got the job and, and they were paying me because by the end they were so bankrupt that I was basically like the assistant stage manager with, (laughs) which is not really how my brain works, but it did by then. So I I did seven or eight months of that. And then in the midst of working at this opera company backstage, I realized that I missed singing. And so I went to a voice teacher who said, look, I can't, we can't do opera after a point. We can start with breathing, but then you might have to go somewhere else. But it sounds like you're a folk singer. I mean, it sounds like that's where your heart is. That sounds like where your songs are and what you love. And so she told me about all of the open mics that she had gone to in the early 70s that were still around. And that's how strong the music scene was in Boston. Everything was going through a revival. And you could go to an open mic every night of the week. So I sort of, I let that world choose me. I I wrote a play that I was going to turn into a feature length play. It was a one act and it won a contest thing. And then they said, turn it into a full thing. And then I was informed by the head of that theater company when he was my waiter at a restaurant (laughs) that they had folded. (laughs) So then I went off to the song circles and the open mics of the folk scene, and it just kept on going. And so here I am. 
So your interest was in opera, but you were guided towards folk. Did that resonate mm-hmm. with you at the time that you were like, yeah, you know, you're right? Or yeah, mean, what was that like? It was, I, said I, w- I said I was interested in opera or folk. I said, you know, I'm here at the opera company and I'm, you know, a backstage person, but it's so beautiful. But I grew up with, you know, my dad's folk rock collection from the 60s and and this is these are my idols and a lot of the radio was playing contemporary folk music in Boston at the time and I was really loving this whole wheel turning new scene and so she wasn't uh she was right that's where I wanted to go Mm -hmm. so you started playing at the various coffee houses and then how did things evolve from there because I mean a lot of people play at coffee houses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a, um, a lot of people, well, it's funny, in, in the open mic scene, a bunch of us did become full-time performers. But, you know, there was this kind of mystery in the air. And so what would happen is you would play at the open mic and then you would be asked to be the feature act of the open mic and play three extra songs and you would get paid, you know, $30. Like, <laughs> it would be like that. Mm-hmm. And I played at a place for tip jar plus $10 and dinner and you just did anything you could. And there were a lot of opportunities to do stuff like that. And you would, you know, you'd call this promoter who was cool and sometimes would throw you an opening slot. You'd call this promoter who's not so cool and kind of gross, but would offer you an opening spot and you just try not to let him, you know, kiss you. Actually, that was minimal. There was minimal grossness, which Mm -hmm. was great. And then finally I moved I was going out with someone. He was a folk singer, too. And I just felt like I needed space. And I felt claustrophobic. And I felt like I was getting competitive. I felt like I was getting petty. Like the scene, of course, we're really young. And we want to know if we're going to make it. And it's competitive. But I didn't like what it was doing to me. So I moved to Northampton. And my boyfriend at the time promptly, you know, dumped me for his roommate, which now makes a lot of sense <laughs> to me. I moved a hundred miles away. And so I had a lot of time and space, you know, a straight woman in the lesbian Mecca of the Northeast, you know, I had a lot of time and space to just sit on my futon and write the songs that became my first CD, which I recorded, you know, on a shoestring budget out in the woods and in my friend Rusty's basement. And then when that CD came out, it had songs on it that were my, you know, The Honesty Room was my first CD. And, the, and from the moment I released that, I was a full-time musician. Wow. Sounds kind of Fast. fairy tale like Yes. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was a couple of years of, wow, I really want to do this, but everybody wants to do this. And who knows if I, you know, and all that stuff. And then, and kind of scratch and claw and, you know, I, I played it. I played at this one bar where there were like five people at the bar, and they were paying me a hundred dollars to pay, play for um, three hours. And so I was mixing in some of my songs. And I said at one point, "This is a song that has to do with my college town. It used to have a big mafia presence, but it doesn't anymore." And everybody swung around from the bar, and they're like, "No, it's still there." <laughs> and that's when I realized that they were listening, and it was like. The jig was up and they and they all openly started to listen and they gravitated these five guys like to the table in front of me. And I was so heartbroken and so lost. And it was so late night, foggy New England. It it just felt like this was the beginning 
of something I just felt so um, heartened and and loved by these guys who would show up at shows throughout my career. I saw one of them last year um, that uh, that night sort of kept me fueled up mm-hmm. for all of the embarrassing, weird foggy New England night bumps in the road on the way to making the CD. But really, that whole period was three years, two or three years Mm -hmm. in my early 20s, which is appropriate, I think. Right. And so this this CD that was produced on a shoestring budget, you released it on your own, you you kind of just put it together, and it was an independent release. Yes, at first. And then it was going to be on somebody's label, but then I got a really bad feeling about that. And I thought, uh Oh, I've already, you know, put his information on the CD itself. Like back in the day, you'd have to work with these printing houses. And the day after I realized I really didn't want to work with this label, you know, put my thing out on his label, I got a phone call from the printing house. And they're like, we're really sorry. But yet again, we've got some glitch, you have to come down to New York City. And, and I said, I will. And we got rid of that information and I self-released. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you, early 90s CD graphics learning curve. (laughs) It was great. So yeah, it was self-released. And then I got picked up by a lovely poet named Andrew Calhoun for his Waterbug label with a very loose contract. In fact, I don't think we had a contract, really. And then I got picked up by the end of the year by a record company called Razor and Tie, which was also like a fairy tale. I was with them for about um, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Did your parents have any strong opinion about what field you should go into? (laughs) My parents, uh, you know, everything is sort of counterintuitive to some of the ways that people think that struggle will really help their... My parents were very supportive. I you know, didn't write songs when I was depressed and sort of living under a rock or in a cave. You know, I I had to kind of have some feeling of, of happiness or confidence to write songs, you know. And, and so all of my stories are about sort of finding the happy place <laughs> where I got to do this. My parents were supportive of my being a playwright, but they were more supportive of my being a folk singer. Isn't that Funny. I mean, that's like me saying, I'm going to go sit in the middle of the street and, and, you know, read my poetry. And they'd be like, yeah. So, so, and in fact, my mom said, you should do that thing where they go out with a guitar and they put out a hat. I was like, you're telling me to busk? And she's like, yeah. (laughs) You're like, yeah, that's what people do, right? And, and she, and I said, look, mom, things are kind of going fast right now. And I think this is going to be it. I think I'm going to be a folk singer and this is where I'm going to, you know, the money that I have saved up from this, I think I'm going to put it into finishing up this CD. And and she said, when I think of my heroes, Joan Baez and Judy Collins and and all of the people who, who made the music that Dad and I love so much, and I think that my daughter might do that, I just... <gasps> she didn't even finish her sentence, which was so interesting because, you know, it's... I mean, it, it's bumpy. Yeah, that's not the typical parental response <laughs> to the kid who wants to do what you did. They, 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 you know, there's concerns about earning a living, usually. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that came just, bef- just before the CD came out. There was this kind of, what are your other options? So, you know, 1990, 91, I started to do open mics. My first gig was um, 
I was paid $50 to open for my roommate's colleague at the cocktail bar where they worked. Her her colleague had just quit her job to go full-time into music, and that was Patty Griffin. (laughs) So so that was 1990, 91, and 91, 92, and then 92, I was this sort of heartbreak-broken, playing-at-bars kind of poking-around person. And then in 93, I, I recorded the CD, and around 93, my mom's like, so what do you, where, okay, so where do we, like, it's it's sweet. We all, like, put little $10 bills in your pocket as you're walking out the door. You, Mom and Dad and my sisters would, like, stick a $5 bill in my purse. <laughs> and, and and I thought of, I thought of becoming, getting an MFA in theater and becoming a theater professor. And my mom's like, I, I get that you're looking in these directions, and I think you should, you know, you should be smart about if this doesn't work out. And my dad said, well, don't get an MFA, just write a bunch of bad plays until you (laughs) write a good play. (laughs) It's the same (laughs) amount of money. And then you can be an artist in residence. And he said, but you know, I don't know, the idea that you would never sing kind of breaks my heart. And I thought that's a unusual. I mean, he didn't really put it on a sleeve like that usually. So they really love their music. I mean, it sounds like, you know, they were, and and they wanted you to be part of that world of theirs. Yeah, they they saw what I came to see. I taught a course about the history of music movements, you know, social movements and music, and where music was a part of that. And they knew what I came to realize, which was that um, in the 60s in particular, the fusion between music and the social movements of the time was very strong. And it's, it was a way that you could keep your heart and your mind and your community engaged in your social movement, not just with Bob Dylan songs that were very topical, but with things called zipper songs, which were those songs like This Little Light of Mine, and then you'd zip on something contemporary. You know, this is for Mayor Daly, this is for Giuliani, this is for, you know, you, you take your present thing and you zip it on to these traditional songs. That's another thing. Also, there was a lot of poetic lyric writing as a way for these kids who were distancing themselves from their parents' politics, religions, you know, whole worldview. This was a way for these kids to sort of minister to each other and remind each other that, you know, like in the song Our House by Crosby, Stills and Nash, you know, Graham Nash singing, the windows are illuminated by the evening sun and those are our jewels. That's our wealth. We two cats in the yard and, and that kind of simplicity. All of that stuff was fused with the life and the politics and the progressive world that my parents and a lot of their friends were dreaming about. So it was a very deep love. I'm still like really blown away by the amount of love and support that you got from your parents entering into this creative endeavor. And I just imagine that it must have helped a lot because, you know, it's like their vote of confidence in you. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's enough stuff that I did and that friends of mine did where they were swimming upstream. And, you know, there are things that I did that my parents didn't approve of at all. And, and I did them anyway. And that's a growing experience. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to swim upstream sometimes. I mean, I get it. But in this case, 
And also, you know, my mom didn't really understand the first songs that I wrote. It was it was really interesting because I sang a song to her and she goes, I'm sorry, I just don't get that one. Then I sang it and she goes, just don't get that. And, and then months later I said, okay, here's one that I think you might like. And I'm singing it for her and she's looking like, nope, I'm not getting this. And the chorus says, she's the best one that we've ever had. She sits on her hair and she's tall as my dad and she tied my... She tied-eyed my shirt and she pierced her own ears and it's peace, man, cool, yeah, the babysitter's here. And my mom just started to smile like, oh, I get that one and I know exactly <laughs> who you're writing about. And she and she looked so relieved because she wanted to be supportive. But there were some months of her saying, I don't, you know, your songs are so obtuse. I don't, uh. and, um, and I pushed back on that one. But then when I wrote the song about our old hippie babysitter, she was so happy. And I think that helped her see that, you know, everyone's going to get something and everybody, you know, it, it, it all worked out in the end. So let's um, shift gears a little bit and talk about your role models, who you were influenced by. A big thing happened to me when I was 16 years old. I was going off to go dance <laughs> at the Guggenheim Museum because I was there was this kind of I mean I wasn't a great dancer but there was this thing where anyway there was this one specific dance that they wanted this group of kids to do at the Guggenheim because it was an international party gala and we were going to do this Scottish thing so I stayed home from school that day because I didn't get enough sleep and I just thought I don't want to mess that up and no one was in the house, and I decided to pull out these Judy Collins records that I'd been listening to since I was six, but never listened to the lyrics. And I was doing my homework and listening to these lyrics, and I remember just putting down my pen and really listening and saying, my God, these people really, they treat music like it's very important. Like these songs are very important. And this was the disco era for me, you know, in the early 80s. These people, this wasn't just content or product. I mean, these people thought that they were making the world go round. I, I would love to write songs like this. Like, that's incredible that they had such a community of faith because they're all singing each other's songs, like Leonard Cohen and Pete Seeger and Joni Mitchell and Judy Collins. And it's like I got it. And it was such a strong lightning bolt that it stuck with me, you know, through through the years ahead, even though I thought I wanted to do theater. So all of those late 60s, early 70s writers who took themselves so seriously, like Leonard Cohen and Judy Collins and Joan Baez, my, my father had an alphabetized record collection. So like everything that was B through D, that was <laughs> the Beatles, Bob Dylan, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Jim Croce, uh, John Baez, Judy Collins, <laughs> like it was, there was so much between those three letters. And then you'd go a little east to the Mamas and the Papas and Simon and Garfunkel. So they were my role models. Cause, and if you look at them, I mean, they were really wealthy, but if you look particularly like at, at Carol King's tapestry, I mean, she had written like, didn't she write leader of the pack? Or, no, she, she wrote so many famous s- songs and, and yet her tapestry album is a picture of her in jeans with a cat in a bay window. I don't think she's wearing any makeup. She looks like she's living in off-campus housing at Wesley and, you know, with 16 housemates who are like, what are you doing down there? <laughs> <laughs> so so they, you could really 
like get really attached to your role models because they were doing a lot of stuff to look like the rest of the world Mm -hmm. with their genes and their attitudes. So yeah, Paul Simon was really that, that kind of, you know, he was the sort of disenfranchised, you know, alienated suburban kid kind of going in to urban culture and out of it. That was, um, that was really a big one for me. I guess that experience maybe contributed to your the writing workshops that you conduct. The you know what? Songwriting? what I, yes, I lead a retreat called Writing a Song That Matters. And the thing about what happened with my career is that the songs that I wrote from that, you know, theater world place and, and influenced by the late 60s folk rock writers, you know, all of those influences led me to write songs that I would sort of, I would align my, you know, I would tune in to what I was really feeling, like, well, what really happened? And one of those songs was called When I Was a Boy, and it starts as like, when I was a boy, I could, you know, roam around the woods with no shirt on and all that stuff, and now I don't because I'm not a boy anymore. But at the end, I was like, well, so where is this song going? And I thought, you know, I think we should hear from the boys and they should say what I'd heard from all these boys. Cause I look like everybody's sister. <laughs> like I, that's, that's my appeal. <laughs> I look like everyone's little sister, you know, and guys would say like, I've never told anybody this, but I used to cry a lot. I love my mom so much. I don't talk to her as much as I want to. I like to, I used to pick flowers. I like knitting or whatever, you know, but I'm not like other guys. I decided to take all those testimonies and sort of wrap it up and put it into a last chorus where she turns to the guy and says, well, obviously I lost a lot because now I have to be a woman. I can't be a boy anymore. And he's like, well, I lost a lot, too, because I had this kind of girl thing. That song, listening to, you know, sort of my psyche and what I really wanted to write was what launched my career. And like the woods where I would creep it's a secret I can't keep Except when I'm tired Except when I'm being caught off guard and I've had a lonesome, awful day The conversation finds its way To catching fireflies out in the backyard And so I tell the men I'm with About the other life I lived And I say now you're Top Gun I have lost and you have won And he says, oh no, oh no, can't you see When I was a girl My mom and I, we always talked And I picked flowers everywhere that I walked And I could always cry Now even when I'm alone, I seldom So 
similarly writing about a hippie babysitter or writing As Cool As I Am, which I thought was going to make me sound really jealous and (laughs) unappealing. Those were the songs that did well. And so I was teaching at at Wesleyan and a friend of mine said, you love teaching, why don't you lead a songwriting retreat? And I said, you know, I could only do it if I didn't have to talk about how to do a press pack or find a record label or any of those things that are like impossible right now. I would really love to lead one if it were called something like writing a song that matters. <laughs> he said, all right, well, we're all set. My friend, Tom, his name is Tom Todorov, and he's an acting coach mm-hmm. and he has a whole conservatory now. And he's, you know, he and he lived here in town. And I said, well, there is this place called the Garrison Institute down the street that's kind of great. And he goes, let's check it out. So he said, we've got the place. You've got the name. And I said, terrific. I'll do it in 2014. And he said, no, you're going to do it in 2013. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. And we kind of threw it at the wall. And it it stuck. And it was quite incredible. Really kind of what I was meant to do, I think. So, Mm. so yes, these these kind of role models that kind of world that I was a part of helped me say with genuine, uh, w- with genuine faith to these songwriters that when you write songs that matter to you and you proceed along the lines of really checking in with if they, you know, how true they feel to you, these are the songs that you'll be proud of. And maybe they'll be the songs that get commercial appeal as well. But we start with the poet. We, you know, we start with the songwriting experience the process. Wonderful. And and you've been running that retreat every year since then, right? We've been doing it. Yeah, I think this was our seventh year. Seventh mm-hmm. year. And it's for adults? The rules are we, we kind of had to learn the hard way on this one. We didn't have an age restriction, but now it's 18 plus. It's 16 if if we set it up right with the parents, mm-hmm. either the parents being there or or being around. And that's great. And that it, that sort of puts a flag out that this isn't that this is for kids who are that kid, you know, that serious kid who's 16 and really knows that this is what they want to do. And it's been <laughs> we got the age right. Finally, under 16, it's it's that's a tough one mm-hmm. because affected things. So the mixing and matching is what I'm excited about. It sounds exhilarating, really. Let's get back to the the singer songwriting dar. And just share with us your favorite part of your career and what you find most fulfilling about it. My favorite part of the career is when I finally finish a song and I think, yes, that's what I wanted to write. And that's, you know, that was what was waiting through. There's a lot of, especially now, because I because I am wearing different hats, there's a little bit more blood, sweat and tears around writing songs. And so, you know, it's still worth it. When I finish one and I play it for the first time for an audience and I can fold it into my other songs, I think that's still my favorite part of the career. And the other thing is that now I have this breadth, you know, this length of my career. So I'll go back to places like Berkeley, California or um, Denver, Colorado, and, and I'll know people and I'll see how they've grown, how their community's grown. I kind of check in, I go to my favorite restaurants and stuff. So this, this feeling that I have this beautiful network, you know, like this, like a sky full of constellations, you know, like, oh, I'm doing the Midwest tour. So I get to go to Zingerman's and Ann Arbor. (laughs) That is that firsthand sense of what our country is. And I think maybe some of the 
the pridefulness that I might have about it, where I'm like, oh, you know, you say this about the South, but the South is also this and this and this. And mm-hmm. like, I've, I've been everywhere. Like, I like, <laughs> I like how I have such a, a sense of a feel for these different regions of the country and it's such a love and affinity for them. They're so different. I mean, what country has alligators down there and lobsters up there and, you know, ancient rainforests still up in the Pacific Northwest versus gorgeous ancient deserts in the Southwest? Like Mm -hmm. what country Mm -hmm. has that? So I I feel the the breadth of that as I look back on my life. And I think that's my sort of the whole spectrum of it is what I love the most as well. And the fact that you get to maintain these connections over more than 20 years. Yes, yes. I think drawing on 30 now. Oh, wow. Anything that surprised you about your career? Yeah, I think uh, it rose fast. I mean, right now, I think people are really interested in gender, you know, this thing that we call gender. But I don't think that's what we called it in the early 90s. So when I wrote when I wrote the song when I was a boy, it kind of that alone just had a kind of a power to it. And suddenly my career had a momentum that none of my peers did. And and I said to my peers, it's because of this song. And I, I'm feeling very lucky about it. But, you know, like I was swimming with some incredible songwriters at the time, younger, older, you know, the whole nine yards. And and I uh, was surprised at how I, you know, with my dorky haircut and didn't wear makeup and didn't have wheeled luggage. And, you know, like I had to go on a really fast learning curve. And I was like, me? Okay. You know, but it was good. Like I'm very adaptable. So I was like, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll jump on this bus, you know? So that was a surprise. Joan Baez inviting me to, to tour around the country with her was a surprise. And, and, and what a beautiful world she was a part of was, was really, what she introduced me to was, I mean, it was, I don't know if that's a surprise or just a dream. And then, then the sort of the disappointing surprise that kind of was a jolt, like was a real earthquake for all of us in the industry was, I remember in 2005, I recorded an album and it just, it sold half of what the last album had sold. So all my albums would, you know, I sold 50 and then I sold 100 and then I sold 150 and then, you know, it was very exciting Mm -hmm. to see how each album would sell better. And then suddenly this one sold half, you know, and I was like 43,000. That's wow. And well, that album, it must have sucked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, I know that people didn't like the cover. I know that people didn't like this song. And then, you know, like, okay, it was really eclectic. But then I walked into um, a Starbucks and just saw like all Bob Dylan. And what Starbucks used to do, they used to have this relationship with something called Hear Music, where they would have, let's say, a Nora Jones record to tour- turn you on to Nora Jones. And then they'd have here's a big compilation of people who are kind of like Nora Jones and we're going to turn you on to these people and get you to buy their CDs and then we'll sell their CDs. And they, they really went out of their way to create like a coffee house culture out of a box. I mean, it was Starbucks, but they would, they took on some stewardship about getting people excited and turned on to new music. And it was all Dylan. And I, and then I walked into another one that I think was like all Sheryl Crow. And somebody said, open your eyes and see what's happening. Record companies don't sell records anymore because of the streaming 
you know, because of streaming or because people can plug their CDs into their things and download all these CDs for free or whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's dead. It's dying. And suddenly the cover of Billboard wasn't just like the flavor of the week woman with, you know, big hair and big boobs that they would stick up. It was all pictures of like nervous looking guys with ponytails going, oh, my God, what's happening to our industry? Like, so Starbucks was showing you this kind of, okay, we used to, you know, record labels used to be about 20 kids going out with a million dollars each and signing 20 bands and maybe five of them would succeed, but there would still be some rainforest, you know, canopy, lower structure of famous people, people starting out, something hits the wall and sticks. They just changed everything to the Eagles. You love them then, you love them now. All our money is the Eagles. All our money is Bob Dylan. All our money is this. Mm -hmm. And so those tears disappeared. And suddenly all this, a lot of big acts were going into the non-commercial stations where my albums used to be played. And so suddenly it's like, okay, Dar Williams, Tom Petty. I think we're going to go with Tom Petty. And everything shifted and it shifted for all of us. And I think what all of us did was to skitter off and, you know, go off into our basements and our rooms and write more songs and try to be better and try to figure out social media and blame it on ourselves. And then we finally emerged and said, this industry totally changed, you know, capitalism kind of it will get every industry and it, and it got ours, you know, mm-hmm. somebody's holding a big pot and it's not us, not mm-hmm. the artists. And once we found each other, we were still suffering economically. <laughs> I mean, it was still watching 80% of my, no, I say 40 to 50% of my income went out the door over a period of two years. So that was a readjustment, but we found each other again and our friendships strengthened over that sort of talking about figuring out how to how to survive and how to support each other and how to still love music the way we always did. So it's not better now, but that was a silver lining that the community of relationships I have with musicians is is stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. Again, building community and, yeah. and, and kind of reemerging and reorganizing from that. Yes, and, and really, you know, reaching into our our into that community and saying what do we still believe in and you know somebody said to me it must be hard to write songs if you think that nobody's going to hear it and and i was like thank you that's that's true i mean you'd like to think and it's true that i still write songs because i love to write songs mm-hmm. and it's still true that i just you know i write songs for the sake of writing songs but all of us when it you know went into this thing where you put something out into the world and everything goes so fast that everyone says, wow, and then it's done, it's gone. And that's not the way things used to feel. You used to feel it stick and you felt its presence in the world for a little bit and then it would move on and that's normal. Now it just feels what I, what I, I have a song where I call it the silver hope kaleidoscope <laughs> that's spinning away. I mean, it's just, there's so much beautiful imagery to catch us mm. for a second mm. And we can go very broad, but we don't go as deep as we used to. And it's it's harder to write in that world. You feel a little swirled up and caught up in, in that speed. And it can be dispiriting. So we are very good at keeping each other's love and, you know, self-confidence alive. And we were never really that competitive, but now we're just not at all. 
That's wonderful. And for, you know, those of us who are seeking the depth, we find it. 20s and 60s, uh, you know, the 20s in the United States and the 60s in the United States, maybe every, you know, 60 years, 40 years, something. The 90s had this too. People sought a certain kind of resonance in the 90s. And there was an enormous amount of social organizing, not necessarily political organizing, but people putting together their own coffee houses and their coffee houses uh, in their colleges and their open mics and things like that and, and getting very excited about what they could do themselves. I mean, that was the whole DIY thing. And I'm hoping that this sort of the world of sitting under a tree, writing a song for the sake of writing a song, going out to hear live music, you know, getting into more of that DIY excitement as an economic culture as well as a social culture. I'm kind of hoping that we figure out some way back to something that we're very that we're craving a kind of a bio a cultural biophilia any myths or misconceptions that you'd like to dispel the biggest myth is is about really what we've been discussing in terms of people thinking that the music business is uh all about figuring out how to get the number of clicks going so that you can then make money at your career. It's I, my son brought me something uh, that he likes to watch called Adam Ruins Everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and he goes, hey, mom, he just did one about the music business. And I thought, oh, gosh, I really hope that he ruins it the way I want him to ruin it. You know, he'll talk <laughs> about things how, like how brothels in the 19th century were great community building organizations because the madams had money and they they tended to spend them on schools and libraries <laughs> like he does stuff like that so so we love adam who ruins everything and i just thought ah, i'm i'm thinking that he's not going to ruin it because the new york times had a series of articles that said the music business has never been stronger you know what's wrong with these artists they're selling more than ever there's more money there than ever so he started to go in that direction and then he said, the record companies have more money now, they're, or they've built back from a kind of a low point, but they're not passing it on to artists. And I was so relieved to hear him say that. There is money to be made. I, I do make money from selling on, from Spotify and Pandora and Apple Tunes and, and sort of the general pool of music out there on the internet. And that is higher than it was. So that's something that I should that's a myth that I had to pop for myself. There is money there. Mm-hmm. However, it is, I, I would say, a quarter, 15% to 25% of what it was mm. back when CD CDs were being sold. Also, when you owned a CD, it was like a, a shareholder share. It's like you owned a share of R.E.M. or a share of Carly Simon. Mm -hmm. You had that beautiful album and it was yours and you chose it and you bought it and you listened to the whole thing on its own terms. So another myth is that it was just the economics of music that got disrupted with streaming culture. We also went back to something that was more part of the early 60s, which is singles culture. You know, you listen to an artist for one song or three songs. You don't steep yourself in their you know, Ladies of the Canyon, Joni Mitchell world for six months in your car, just kind of fusing your life experiences with theirs and kind of creating a symbiotic dreamscape with that artist. That doesn't happen as much. And so that sense of affiliation and connection to their whole 
of is not there. And that's a different culture as well in terms of how the kinds of allegiance people have, even to listening to live music in general, and certainly to sort of the this more s- small coffeehouse world of it. For people to believe that it's just different, it's equal and just different, it's not, it's, it's harder. I don't enjoy the conversation about making music as a career, having that conversation with young people as much as I did back in the 90s. Jonathan Brooke and I talked about that. We said, you know, we used to say to kids in front of their parents, like, yeah, do it. Who cares what they think? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we're like, well, can you do music and something else? Mm-hmm. And maybe your life will be better for that anyway. You sure. know, but it's not the same jump in that van and go thing that, that we used to encourage young people to go ahead and do. To that end, what advice would you give someone just beginning to pursue a career in this field? What I basically say is that there are all these numbers, you know, as you're starting to put yourself out in the world, I, I would say three things. One is you are allowed to be totally bummed out. I mean, it's not that much different than it was in the 90s when you're trying to get a record contract, say, or you're going out as an indie artist, but to say, wow, okay, so you're sitting there and you don't know if you believe in yourself and you can either get your butt out of a chair and go to an open mic and, you know, get on social media and talk about yourself or just not. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, let's say not. Let's say you don't want to do that. It's so kind of cruel that people will come up and say, well, you got to believe, you got to go push yourself on social media and tell everybody how great you are and master the language of sounding humble and yet putting yourself out there. And, you know, you got to, you got to blow up your own bubble in order to, you know, get anywhere in this world. Well, a lot of times you don't have any confidence and and somebody coming in and finding you and saying, I see what you're doing. It has Mm -hmm. value is what will help you. So one piece of advice I'd have is get out to open mics and maybe see if there are people who believe in you who can help you make your posters and call you up and say, I believe in you. This mm-hmm. is the world still loves music. Let's let's get out there. Let me put something on Facebook for you. As opposed to just saying, yeah, if only you were just more savvy. Some songwriters are really good songwriters. They're really, really bad at putting themselves out there. And so we're allowed to notice that fusing those two jobs together can have a particularly cruel effect on young artists mm-hmm. who, you know, it's hard enough for them to have written some beautiful song. The other thing is that there's all sorts of numbers that you'll encounter when you put yourself out there, like your age, your weight, your audience size, how much you're selling, how much you're, how many clicks you're getting. There's all these numbers, and I call them the numbers. <laughs> and they're all <laughs> toxic. Mm. Or they can be. And the one number that I tell kids is helpful is money. Because you look at, if you can, in a very like basic, chunky way, you can go, okay, what's my rent? What are my utilities? What do I generally spend on food? Like, let me just try to figure this out. I don't have to get too granular, but like, what do I generally spend Okay, like I did that when I was in my early 20s. And I was like, if I had $21,000 a year, I could live really well on my $200 rent, including utilities and 18 housemates. And I could have sushi once in a while, I could still go to therapy. I, you know, that would be amazing. So I knew that that's what I had to make. 
to know that, then you can say, okay, you know what? I can only make $8,000 a year on music. And so I have to find another thing to do besides playing music. So that's just a fact. That's not personal. That's not playing the lottery every day of your life and thinking maybe I'll hit, you know, maybe my ship will come in. You can do that, but you're also allowed to say, this is what I need to survive. And I don't want to die and I don't want to freak out. I don't want to have a nervous breakdown. So that's a reality. I had so many students come up to me and say, thank you for saying that, because so many people say, if you do what you love and the money will come. And I don't, I, I advocate believing that the sky is the limit, believing that anything could happen and getting really excited about that. And also knowing that, like, let's say, instead of writing When I Was a Boy, I wrote a song about podiatry. Like, you could still write a beautiful song, but the world would not have really wanted to hear that song. You know, maybe I would love that song, but... Or the Podiatrist Association. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, actually, I, I wrote a song called What Do You Hear in These Sounds that had to do with psychotherapy. And one of my only awards that I've ever gotten is from the Santa Clara Psychological Association, which I'm so proud of. So, so yeah, like, but, you know, let's say that there's a passion, but the niche is really small. You can still believe in yourself, but you're not going to make you know, you're not going to make a lot of money that way. And and you deserve to feel your worth. If you And if you can be honest about what kind of money you can make in music, and then be honest about the fact that you're a mammal who wants to survive, then you can have a conversation between what's actually happening and what you really need and make decisions from there as opposed to the magical thinking if I just was more talented, if I just cared more, if I was just more committed, everything would be different. I'd like to take the burden off of people's shoulders by saying, go ahead and pay attention to money and then figure out, you know, 18 housemates, great. You know, spend less money, great. You know, don't have a car, wonderful. But also, if that's what you spend, that's what you spend. And you're allowed to go off and be like the most awesome assistant camp director the world has ever seen and do your music. Right. And I actually, my, <laughs> I see this kid from time to time who I saw early on and I don't, I just, I guess I'd had a glass of wine or it's, anyway, she, she was trying to be a full-time folk singer. And I said, you know, you're so charming and you're so pretty. <laughs> she was just, I mean, she just had this kind of sweetness about her. She was young and, and charming. And you know, she wrote these like great righteous feminist songs, but there was this kind of, you know, nice, nice. <laughs> I said, why don't you be a cocktail waitress? Like, look at that. What a sweet, <laughs> like, just, just go, go out there one night a week, which is what my housemate did. She uh-huh. was also like really extroverted, really charming. Mm-hmm. And she would basically make her rent by, uh, you know, by working at, at a bar once a week and then doing her other jobs that she loved that made less, less money right. throughout the week. Right. And this girl and her parents, they always come up with like, remember us? You're the one who told our daughter that, you know, <laughs> no. they said, he said something about, you know, just unbutton the top button of your shirt. I was like, oh, no. Oh. But, <laughs> but, so I don't, you know, but... You know, there's all sorts of waitstaff jobs and all sorts of people who do landscaping, people who do like really interesting other things. And then it ends up informing their music as well. Like it's it's so it's okay. Like maybe you it gets to be about you when you are being really realistic that way. I worked at a bookstore for a while and 
you know, I was really depressed and I was lonely and that, that job kind of saved me. I don't know. I just, I love the people I was working with. I liked, you know, you stack a pile of books and you look at the books and say, I stacked that, you know, it, it, doing stuff is doing stuff. And I think as, as mammals, we also, you know, waiting for approval is not a way to, to live your life either. You want to offer your music as a gift, which is what I was given the luxury of doing. Proudest moment, biggest disappointment. Proudest moment was when I was told by a couple that their daughter would lock herself in her room and only played the Indigo Girls and my music. (laughs) And I thought, you know, and it was early in my career. And I thought, let's just make that the high point right there. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of cool stuff has happened, but like, let's make that the high point. Let's make communication be the high point. Like I've gotten some big checks, like playing Lilith Fair was, was great. And they put my song on the compilation and that was an interesting two year cycle of royalty checks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I've had my songs in TV shows, which has been really exciting. And I've played all around the world and it's always kind of felt like a magic carpet ride. So it's all good. But for me, that benchmark of some story that tells you that your music communicated, I was like, let's just make that what I hold myself to because otherwise it's just a lot of helium. I mean, it can feel too high. High can feel very high. And the biggest disappointment, I don't know. I don't really think it's happened yet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the crash of the music industry happened to all of us. And I don't know, I, I think when I look back, having a crash like that in terms of, I don't know, I think it built character. Mm-hmm. It was, it sucked, but <laughs> but I think ultimately, you know, because I was also, you know, my son was two and it, it was tough. But the crash, I don't know, the phoenix, there was a phoenix that came out of that, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I think it, it made me a better did something good for me. So no, I don't, I don't think I've had the disappointment yet. Do you experience any letdown after you play? I, some musicians have told me they're on the stage and they're in the clouds when they're playing. Uh, and then they get home back to their normal life. And it's a bit of a letdown after the highs they experienced while they were performing. I think that living in a performing world, being part of a performing thing it can put a little electricity in your blood in general. And I think that we can take that seriously culturally in terms of the whole mix of how, you know, artists can sometimes look a little different, like the way they dress, the way they look, the way that, you know, and also because you're up late, you sleep late, so you don't look like other people that way. You can't really have house pets or, um, house plants sometimes because of that life and like there's just all sorts of stuff that you are different for but I do think like my first managers were so like okay Joan Baez wants to take you around the world but don't get too you know don't get conceited <laughs> like there's always this like uh-oh Dar's gonna go off the rails I'm like really me this haircut this person but I think that probably helped and so that you didn't get too fussy. I had my fussy moments. I could lose it from time to time, but that kind of management, that kind of rein you in management helped. And you know, when I was a parent, like I went off to Amsterdam and I got these boots that were like thigh high and like high heel. And, you know, I remember being in those boots and a mini skirt in a 
24 hour drugstore getting a giant thing of diapers for my son at midnight in California and being like, you know, I like this. Like, I like this mix. (laughs) As long as I don't get solicited. (laughs) You know, I I like this mix. I like the fact. and, And when I come home from a gig and I'm by myself, I really like doing jigsaw puzzles right now. And and there's something about coming home from a Connecticut gig and I'm it's like 1230 at night and I put on my glasses and I work on, you know, a puzzle of the Sistine Chapel ceiling and I find this piece in that piece and I think about my friends or I call a friend in California and I go to bed at 230. That's like, you know, and the lilac bushes are outside and it's coming through my windows like that's beautiful, too. It sounds like there's a, an, an element of additional freedom to a life that you've described that in, in your profession. And I guess that's one of the perks. Yes. The, the per, if you can handle the high and the low of, you know, I'm out amongst all these people and then I go home and I'm very much alone in that coming down energy thing. If that's if that's good. Yes, there's a lot of freedom. The freedom of a freelancer is, I don't know, double edged sword. <laughs> I I wake up, somebody said, I said, I just, I wake up in the morning, I feel so overwhelmed. Like, what am I supposed to do? You know, am I supposed to garden? Am I supposed to write? Am I supposed to do both? And, and my friend said, ask. (laughs) She said, wake up in the morning and ask. (laughs) And I do that now. I go, okay, what is, what, what's today going to be? And this voice comes back and it's like, you know, today's a house day. Like everything is going to go better if today is about the house. And, and, you know, today's about the kids. Today's about, you know, writing. And I'll mix it all together because of my attention span being what it is. <laughs> but, but, um, but, you know, f- freedom can, can feel like too much. Um, but yes, it's a huge gift. It's a, if, you, if you know how to appreciate that gift, there's an enormous gift. It's just that your world's different than, you know, you work on the weekends. And, and during the week, you're around just walking around town and you're like, why is everything closed on a Monday? <laughs> and, and, it's, and it sounds like you need to be incredibly self-motivated if you don't have commitments like a typical job that you have to report to at certain times and duties to perform. I'd say that it's more like you have to be committed to, you have to be committed to understanding the nature of your commitments. So there's this thing that I came up with last year that I call the no zone which is, I don't want to do anything. I just don't. And like what I, what I try to do to get out of the no zone, I either just sit and play solitaire or I just like wash one fork. <laughs> like I just try to <laughs> tiptoe out of the no zone. But, you know, I also appreciate the no zone. Like, okay, I, I'm in the no zone right now. I don't want to do, I, I've got to make a phone call. I don't want to. I don't. And I'm paralyzed. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm in the no zone. And then like a half hour later, I can do anything. You know, if I can just roll. And then there's this thing that I call the ozone, which is like, oh, okay, why don't I do this? Oh, I can look, I can talk to a friend while I fold my laundry. I'll do that. You know, it's called a speaker (laughs) phone, you know. And so that's like, oh, how what am I going to do now? And that's that's what I really hope all my days will be that I don't hit the no zone. But if I don't respect how I'm rolling, then I hit the no zone and then I'm useless. And then there's like there's other things that there's something I call the go zone, which is when you feel really motivated and you just ride that one. But that's not all the time. And so I'm a Taoist and I would, quote unquote, push myself harder if it worked, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And 
the worst thing is just being a human knot of anxiety. So freelance is a lot about respecting your your zones and knowing that in the long run you are committed and therefore by respecting your biorhythms and your, you know, talking, you know, your self-talk and all that stuff, you, you are doing yourself a favor. So I, being kind to myself is, is a big part of my freelance thing. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you. This, oh, this yes. has really been so amazing and wonderful. Yeah, incredibly illuminating. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.